0: This message is brought to you by Atomic Child. Do you love the outdoors? Do you wish you had a way to keep it with you throughout your week? Atomic Child is an artist-run brand that is inspired by nature. They capture the great outdoors through unique designs. And their designs can be found on stickers, blankets, water bottles, mugs, pins, patches, and more at AtomicChild.com. Need nature-based art in your life? Look no further. Atomic Child has the gear for you because they bring nature to you. Me, personally, I'm eyeing a new coffee mug or hat with a sweet Colorado design on it. You can bet I'll be ordering some sweet nature-based clothing and accessories right here from Atomic Child. Check out their store and art prints at AtomicChild.com. That's AtomicChild.com.
1: To make sure the quality is always the same and we can scale reliably even when changing a lot of code. So we developed these quality test suits, we run it basically all the time to make sure whatever we do, we scale and we continue to scale. And yeah, we have engineers who are doing, yeah, to even hit at one point of time, we want to hit the 100 million devices mark, which is an order of magnitude larger than most products can do right now. And this is the journey we're on. So it's really about iterating and getting better at scaling every time. My name is Dominic Obermeier. I'm the CTO and Co-Founder of HiveMQ.
0: This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart and today how Dominic Obermeyer set out to build the broker for IOT data from millions of connected devices. All this and more on Code Story. Growing up in a small rural city in Germany, Dominic Obermeier was not exposed to much when it comes to computers. After studying computer science in college, he was hooked. A frequent reader of ancient philosophy, he likes to hang out with friends and play board games, specifically long-lasting games such as Arkham Horror. Obermeyer started a company with his college friends with the goal to broker data from connected devices, and not just a few, but millions, following his very own standardized IoT protocol, MQTT. This solution is now known as Hive MQ.
1: So we started the company in 2012, and when we started we uh, didn't have the product in mind actually and uh, in 2014 we did a pivot because what happened is we were involved in some projects with uh, connecting trains to the internet and then we found out that the technology which were used to build these internet of things solutions back then were really technologies designed for the human internet so a lot of communication was done over http which is perfectly fine if you're doing, let's say, browsers or having REST APIs. But if you're doing uh, IoT at scale, it's just not the right technology. And uh, I was fortunate enough to meet the inventor of a communication protocol called MQTT. He basically told me about the protocol and what it's all about. And then we decided to build the first uh, commercial broker built for the cloud based on this protocol. Um, in 2013 and uh, up to 2014. The MVP took three months. It was uh, not a finished product. It was really MVP to test out if there's a need in the market for this kind of commercial MQTT connectivity broker. And yeah, it turned out developers loved it. um, People loved it. And yeah, so we decided to uh, change our company based on, based on this product. And yeah, this is where we are right now. It's based on the MQ in queue is based on the MQTT protocol. And it was a decision um, also to name it similar to already existing products to these message queuing systems to make it easier also for people to figure out what kind of software category this is. Because back then when we started, there weren't a lot of MQTT brokers out there. And these kind of technology pieces, these MQT brokers are fundamentally different from classic message queues people are used since the 1980s. Mostly about scale and um, how the protocol works. Because if you think about the Internet of Things, usually we're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of devices, which need to communicate in real time over the internet together. And this at lowest latency. The classic messaging systems are not just not designed for this kind of scale. So while these provide a lot of support, feature support like transactions, and are super good for mission mission critical or even business critical um, data to send around systems, these classic MQ systems are really not designed for a huge amount of of devices. And MQTT um, brokers are usually designed for a lot of devices, for sending a lot of data but they come with some trade-offs. And um, so just as an example, so our customers uh, use our product to connect more than 10 million devices at the same time and send um, hundreds of thousands or millions of messages around per second. So this is really about scale and, and you just cannot do this with the classic messaging systems, but the semantics are pretty similar. So you can do messaging with MQTT but the features differ a bit. MQTT is really an Internet of Things protocol and you usually use this for IoT use cases, while the classic message queuing protocols are used for um, inter-service communication.
0: That makes a ton of sense. So back to the MVP a bit. You built the MVP, it took three months. It was something to sort of prove a concept. What decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term when you were building that MVP and how did you cope with those decisions?
1: So um, these decisions we made were um, basically about the target uh, profile, about the personas we were targeting. So since back then, we were everybody was an engineer in our company when we founded the company. And the idea was really to have a product for MPUTT. People who uh, work on the operation side are, can really easily deploy and easily use. So we did not focus on any graphical user interface. So we really decided to have this as a server application. And uh, also in the beginning, we didn't focus on scale. So uh, the initial MVP supported tens of thousands of multi- of connections um, for MQTT, which we knew were not enough for real use cases. But uh, back then this was really just to prove a point and to see if there is even interest um, in larger scale. And this was one of the things we decided pretty early on we focus about the simplicity, the ease of use and the target persona was really an operator person who operates the software basically all day and is responsible for having a software with a lot of uptime. If you think about it, the MQTT broker is a central piece of communication software and if this piece of software fails, you get a huge problem. So we've thought it would be important to have an easy product to use and also a product which provides high availability, but we did not focus on scalability in the first iterations. This changed dramatically as soon as we got the first customers who were very interested in scalability.
0: That makes sense. Interesting. So how has the product progressed since that point? So you built the MVP three months, proved that it worked. How did you progress the product after that? How did you mature it?
1: Yeah, so one of the things we learned pretty early on was that this kind of new software, this kind of MQTT software, really is used by large companies. So pretty early on we got car manufacturers reaching out to us and tell us they needed an MQTT broker which can be used with their enterprise environments. And after the MVP, we developed an extension system which made it possible to integrate with existing infrastructure our customers already had. So to provide full flexibility. And this was something we learned pretty early on, how important it is to run the software on premise for our customers and also how important it is to give the customer the flexibility to modify code by using an extension system. And so this was one of the things we focused on in the early iterations. And then we decided to focus on scalability and uh, we worked very hard build a distributed system which you can install in data centers you can install on any public cloud platform and which scales elastically so you can so if you have an iot project which starts with a few thousand of of devices you need to connect then your business basically works and then you have hundreds of thousands or even millions of these physical devices you sell to your customers then of course you need the backend broker, which also scales with your demand. And so we built in further iterations, this elastic scalability so you can add infrastructure as needed, remove infrastructure as needed without any downtime and without the end user who is using this physical device without noticing that um, you change anything on the backend side. So this was pretty huge. And this was something our competition could not do and also one of the USP still today that we can scale to numbers uh, which are beyond tens of millions of, of devices. And we had further iterations and now there is also we are offering a managed service. So this is like operated by us completely in the cloud. And this is the newest iteration. So our software is not only a on-premise solution anymore, but we operate this for customers. And this is something we saw really change in the last few years. And based on customer feedback, we iterated you.
0: This episode is sponsored by savethechildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, they work every day to give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach, and do whatever it takes for children every day. Right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime. It threatens children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school, and exposed to violence and exploitation. With your support, SaveTheChildren.org can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. Here are some of the ways your support can make a difference. For just $5, you can buy a baby's first book, providing comfort and inspiring a lifelong love of learning. For $10, you can nourish an out-of-school child in need for one-day breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For $35, you can provide educational toys and activities to engage eager out-of-school learners. And for $50, you can deliver essentials that keep kids learning while out of school like books, activities, and supplies. Go to savethechildren.org savekids today or www.savethechildren.org savekids to make a difference. This message is brought to you by RIMS, the Risk Management Society. RIMS is a global organization dedicated to the profession of risk management. For nearly 60 years, RIMS has delivered the latest strategies and resources that allow risk professionals to grow, innovate, and succeed in any business. RIMS works with industry leaders to produce content and online training that business professionals turn to. Topics include business continuity, cyber risk, risk management techniques, the fundamentals of insurance, and more. There is also a private, members-only site where people can discuss sensitive issues and get honest answers. Members have been leaning on each other as we all navigate the global pandemic. If you're concerned about the safety of your employees and the sustainability of your organization, you need the resources and connections RIMS provides. Learn more at go.rims.org slash You can save 25% off a year-long membership. Again, that's go.rims.org slash Codestory. So are you saying that you can do on-prem and cloud solutions, you can do both, or is it still yes. on-prem?
1: Yeah, Yes, it's, it's both. So the software started as an on-premise solution, so our customers were using the software in their own data centers. But pretty early on, they also ran our software on public cloud infrastructure, like on AWS, on Microsoft, um, or on Google. And yeah, but nowadays we even operate the software for our customers. So our customers don't need to install anything on their own infrastructure, but we run it. We run it on all major cloud providers. So yeah, our customers can benefit from just using the software instead of operating it themselves.
0: Now that's really interesting. So are they, when they use it on cloud infrastructure and you're running it for them, do they have a piece of an instance or do they have their own dedicated instance of Hive?
1: Yeah, so we provide our own dedicated instance of Hive. So also basically we, we run it in multiple data centers. So if you're on AWS, we run it in multiple availability zones for our customers. We also operate the load balancers. We also make sure the security part is done right. So we also care about the TLS certificates. And so we also operated 24 seven. So in case anything bad happens, our engineers are always there to fix it. So usually, usually the customer doesn't even notice if there is a problem. Yeah, it just works for our customers.
0: How do you go about building the roadmap now? You know, I get early days, you build it, you make it work and you prove that it works and then you start maturing that core product. But how do you today build your roadmap, what's the best thing to build next?
1: This is a very important question, and this is also uh, for our engineering and product team, it's the most important questions we have. And I see different parts which should we uh, focus on here. So number one is the vision of the technology, the technology vision. And this is really something uh, my job is at the company, and I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of awesome people who also contribute here to the vision. So what are the things which are not yet on the market and customers don't even know they will need? So these are really the huge things. Uh, where can we innovate? Um, this is number one we need to consider. Number two, and this is one of the most important parts, is the customer feedback. We have very close relationships with our customers and we listen very closely what they need and be it some minor feature requests or even some huge problems they see when, let's say, integrating the software with other providers or um, additional business tasks they have and we figure out how we can help them with our software. And the thing, how we bring this together is, and this is our system around this, is we use Kanban. So even from the beginning, we started with a Kanban approach where we can prioritize uh, in a very short term. So in our company, at the core, we are an agile company and not just on the technology side, but also on the business side. So it's really our goal to be very agile and agile means for us, we we have very short feedback cycles, which means we can react on things that happen, be it like on a technical side. So so perhaps there are some some issues, some bugs, perhaps there are some feature requests of important customers. Perhaps there are some obstacles to winning a new customer who needs some um, features or has some requirements we don't fulfill at the moment. So uh, these are the things we all, all need to consider. And so we use Kanban for short feedback, feedback cycles and we reprioritize on a weekly basis with our development team. And in case of any very urgent things, we can even reprioritize on a daily basis, which makes it super awesome. We, our developers, ship code um, on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. And uh, we have a completely automated quality assurance process, um, in addition to the manual quality assurance process, which um, allows us to move at a very fast pace and ship features very, very fast, and then also deliver to our customers very fast. And this is really the, the Kanban process at heart we use, and it worked extremely well for us. Compared with some other companies or some other CTOs I have yeah, good relationships with, most people use Scrum, but for our company, it turned out that Kanban works extremely well.
0: Very good. So, you know, it, it's interesting with agile companies too, it is important to have your processes right, but it's just as important to have the right people running those processes which kind of leads to my next question how did you go about building your team to align with product development and even further what did you look for in the people to pick the winning horses
1: i'm a strong believer in building a team of the best people so before i start, what i do care about people what i don't care about is age and it's anything related to the gender sexuality or whatever so this is something we don't care at all and because what we really want is we want to have the best people and especially ages from my point of view overrated factor so we really like to interview people right from university or people who, who just have a few years of experience uh, because experience is something you can learn but the characteristics of, of the people like the, the character and um, much more important from my point of view. And what do you mean with character? So we have a strong focus on technical people here in our company. Most of the people in our company have a technical background, even in roles like uh, marketing and sales. A technical background is, is usually needed for understanding and market um, and sell the product uh, to our customers who are usually also very technical uh, from the scope. So uh, we work from people uh, straight from university. We work from with senior people we hire um, usually from other companies or from people who also move to our city where we live. And yeah, we also really strive to be in, so we live in a very small city. So the good thing here is we just have 80,000 people living in our area. And we are positioned by far as one of the best technology companies there, which makes it easy to attract uh, people, to attract software engineers, to attract product managers, to attract project managers, uh, consultants, uh, salespeople and um, folks from marketing. So this works pretty well for us. So now we're outside of the big cities. Um, which is a different strategy than other um, companies I know of, but for us it works extremely well. And also when we look at where people are coming from, we have people here in our city, but we also um, have people who work from the other side of the globe. So, So we're in Germany, but we also have people in Canada. So I thought we were a remote team, but for product development, I really like to have people co-located because I found that this accelerates product development and product design.
0: It's really interesting about the co-location. I totally agree with that. You can start to read each other's cues and you sort of feel the warmth of each other's thoughts, so to speak. And it's really important. You know, you mentioned earlier you kind of started without scaling in mind. Let's touch on that a little bit. How did you address scalability as you went about, talk to me more about that journey and how you are building the product with a scalable eye to the future.
1: So in the first versions of Hive and Queue, we found that clustering is one of the most important parts of our software to really scale, also scale dynamically. So in the beginning, we used third party clustering technologies, which were already there. And then we found that this limits our software and we just cannot scale beyond a specific threshold, which is usually which are about, let's say, 50 to 100,000 of devices. And what we did then is we basically rewrote the core of our software and we did a lot of research, which we still continue to do today, which means our software is a distributed so a distributed software. This uh, All the problems of distributed computing apply to the things we do. And so the job of our software engineers, besides coding, is to educate themselves a lot by reading papers. So we usually read up about algorithms and we also work very closely with universities in distributed systems research to find out what are better ways to scale, how can we solve specific problems which you run into when doing things at scale and um yeah at some point of time just for example so as we iterated the product and we got better and better and connected millions of devices we found out the limiting factor is is in fact the the network of the cloud providers so we saturated the networks of the cloud providers and so we really did a lot of optimizations we built tooling around this so we um, even built a whole software stack on based on, on on software which allows us to simulate tens of millions of devices on real infrastructure so we can make sure we hit our scalability goals and uh, now we have for example a very sophisticated device simulator developed in-house where we can simulate any iot scenario any uh, mqdt protocol scenario we can think of and we can just use this and this is also advantage we have um, over the competition because we found scale is so important for our customers that we need to be good and when you do things at scale when just think about when you do connect millions of devices on the same software on the same servers you run in a whole lot of problems like things break all the time and the tiniest change in code which may just seem very little uh, can have catastrophic so small errors in code can cause uh, catastrophic problems uh, for our customers. So it's very important for us to make sure the quality is always the same and we can scale reliably even when changing a lot of code. So we developed these quality test suits. We run it basically all the time to make sure whatever we do, we scale and we continue to scale. And yeah, we have engineers who are doing, yeah, to even hit at one point of time, we want to hit the 100 million devices mark which is an order of magnitude larger than most products can do right now. And this is the journey we're on. So it's really about iterating and getting better at scaling every time.
0: Now, it's fascinating. So you, so you built the solution to set yourself up for success when testing all the changes you've made. You're essentially load testing your platform uh, with you know number of devices to make sure I think that's really, really smart. I think the thing that jumped out at me that I hadn't heard before was the limitation being the pipe in the cloud was the the network in the cloud providers. That's really interesting.
1: Yes, and and these are the things we... So we got better at this and now we still... Our software still saturates the, the network or can saturate the network. But usually most of our customers aren't there to have this large scale, but our software can scale this far. And this is also why we build our own cloud and this is also why we have a multi-cloud approach so we can use uh, the best cloud provider for the job because we found that all of them have their limitations and we developed the tools to find out the limitations and to make the best product for our customers who really care about scale
0: right that's awesome As you step out onto the balcony and you look across Hive and all that you have built, what are you most proud of?
1: So there are multiple things I am very proud of. One of the things which my whole team is extremely proud of is uh, that last year uh, we won the sixth place at the Deloitte Fast 50 Award in Germany because we had a 1,200% revenue growth over the last four years. So so yeah, this, so we really took off, the product really took off, um, our customer base uh, also took off and we had so many amazing customers using our software. And um, yeah, and other things I'm very proud of. So if I look out of the window um, here in Germany, I see a lot of cars driving around. And what makes me and my team very proud of is that most of these cars on the street already use HydenQ for their uh, device connectivity. So basically wherever one of we are here in Germany, we see we see the impact of what our software has on the day-to-day life of people. And this is what we're very proud of. And the third thing I'm also very proud of is that despite the fact that we are a very fast-growing company, we are a bootstrapped company. So we started with an MVP and then we try to get as many customers as possible in a very short time to get a yeah, sustainable cash flow in. And we managed to grow our company um, by serving our customers and by winning new customers and selling our product to the market. And this is also something that makes me proud of.
0: That's awesome. I love it. You look out the window and you say, that car right there is using HiveMQ or that car right there is using Hive MQ." That's something to be really proud of. You can see the difference you made. Let me flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how your team responded to it.
1: So one of the mistakes I made personally was when we grew our engineering team, we knew we had to rewrite major parts of the software for a new major version. And we were very tight on time. And as usually, when you have these ambitious projects, uh, things didn't turn out as we expected. And then I decided to code again. So I nowadays, I don't do any coding like, uh, at all. But back then, I did... Yeah, quite some coding. And I yeah, jumped in and yeah, wanted to be with my developers and also help building the software. I was a pretty good programmer, but I got rusty. And this caused major quality problems. And in the end, uh, this even almost caused a delay in our product. And so this was where we finally learned that um, it's not the best idea that the CTO goes into the product team and helps developing software. Because the the processes and and also the Kanban process I was talking about, it evolved and in the end, so so basically I worked out of the process and then this was not a very good time for the team. And what the team did, and this was the right decision, the team then stepped up and we decided it's not the best idea that I continue coding. And so my team was finally able to ship without me. And this is, was the last time where I um, was coding in our company and uh, it's absolutely right. So um, I like coding. So in my free time, I like coding, but in my company, I have other tasks and uh, I have people working in my company who are, of course, much better than me in coding.
0: I appreciate your, your humility in that. I have been in that position before and I've learned that same lesson uh, that I shouldn't jump in and help. So yeah I, I relate to that lesson. So tell me about the future of HiveMQ. What does the future look like for your product or other products and your team?
1: Now in 2020 one thing that is pretty clear is that the internet of things is not just a buzzword anymore. It is the reality in a lot of projects and you and I strongly believe in the next years even if we don't talk about iot anymore the connectivity which connects physical products physical devices and software together will be part of many comp- will be part of the daily life of many companies and for us we see the future in in cloud computing and this might not be surprising to a lot of people, but when you look at the large Internet of Things deployment you find nowadays, these are usually operated by companies on-premise. So while uh, st- startups and, and business companies use the cloud a lot and, and even enterprises nowadays, uh, we found in our customer base that because of um, di- data privacy reasons, a lot of these large enterprises operate their own systems. and. What we did now with having to Cloud, our software as a service offering, we are changing the game by providing a multi-cloud connectivity layer the customer doesn't need to operate, but which allows to integrate with third-party services, with third-party device management services, with third-party data lakes, with big data, artificial intelligence solutions. And so we really now have this multi-cloud-native IoT messaging layer that our customers can just use without operating it themselves. And we see a lot of customers urge us to this and we completely see the future, our future in this kind of infrastructure. And we also strongly believe that an ecosystem of vendors is needed. So we are living in times where big cloud providers like AWS almost created monopolies on specific software stacks. And what we see is the appetite for customers for using uh, third-party services, the best-in-class third-party services who just work together. And this is something we're actively working on. We have a large partner network, which we um, continue to develop because nowadays it's a software stack consists of so many different pieces. It's very, very hard for companies to, to manage this anymore. And so it's extremely important that things just work, that you can just Um, integrate services together and this is also where we see ourselves we see as part of the ecosystem and we play very nicely together with um, all the major cloud providers and um, many popular third-party services which are required for building these large-scale Internet of things stacks
0: that's good stuff who influences the way that you work dominic name an architect or a cto or a person you look up to and tell me why
1: there are many people I look up to. I don't have a specific person in tech I look up to, but I really look up to a lot of these big personalities, these big characters in our history. Um, I really look up to a lot of the ancient philosophers. I really look up to many of these larger-than-life figures also we have nowadays. so. Just to name a few of them, someone like Bill Gates, who managed to create one of the, the best software companies in the world, one of the, the largest companies in the world, and then pivoted his own life to give back and go into philanthropy and um, yeah, just give back with the foundation he built. And this is, something, this is something really bold. And I look up to these people, how brave these people are and what these people achieved. But these personalities don't, don't necessarily need to be uh, in tech. Of course, nowadays, a lot of these uh, very larger-than-life figures are working in tech. But I usually also try to to look back in history and uh, get inspiration of people from the last decades and centuries. And there are so many people we can learn from. And yeah, but I don't have a specific...
0: That's a great answer. So if you could go back to the beginning when you started HiveMQ what would you consider doing differently?
1: So first of all, I am very grateful to have experienced all these good times and sometimes these very hard times uh, in the past. So I'm very happy that I am now in the place I am. If I would have the knowledge I have nowadays, I would probably start beginning focusing on the business side a bit more. So we started as a pure engineering company uh, with uh, no business person involved at all. So everybody, all of our founders were um, computer science students. So, and then we learned the hard way how business works. And this is something I would probably get a co-founder on board who has a bit of more business background, but also understands the technology aspect of business. So um, this is something I probably would do differently, but I'm very happy where we stand right now.
0: That makes sense. That's a good answer. So you're getting on a plane. You're sitting next to a person who's built the next big thing, whatever it is, and they are just excited to show it to you, excited to tell you about their project. Having gone down this road a bit and seen some success with Hive, what advice would you give that person?
1: An advice I also usually give to startups I, I personally mentor is... The best way to validate product market fit is actual customers paying you money for it. I would strongly recommend to anyone building products to build an MVP, which should be very embarrassing and then try out hypothesis. So, in this, so I would also recommend to read this Lean Startup by Eric Ries, which was really influential for us and for our philosophy around building products. Because it's really about getting feedback, getting customers, getting the customers feedback and iterating on a better uh, product version. So yeah, my advice would be get feedback, sell it, get customers as early as possible, and then iterate from there. And if you can bootstrap, because then you can, completely focus on building product instead of raising money yeah which makes life a bit harder in the beginning but makes life much easier as soon as you found product market fit and have customers paying money for your product.
0: That's great advice. Well Dominic thank you for being on the show today. thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story of Hive MQ.
1: Okay thanks Noah
0: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. code story is hosted and produced by noah laphart season two episodes are co-produced and edited by bradley denham be sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or the podcasting app of your choice support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month and when you get a chance leave us a review both things help us out tremendously and thanks again for listening A quick note from our friends at DrawSQL. As a developer, have you ever wanted to visualize your database schema? DrawSQL helps you create pretty database diagrams to document your database and share it within your dev team. In fact, they just launched a gallery that was featured on Product Time and ranked number three on Hacker News. So definitely check it out to see some database schema references of popular open source packages. Get a 20% lifetime discount on any DrawSQL plans by using CODESTORY, all caps, all one word, at checkout, or just email hello at drawsql.app.
2: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone.